0: Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. All right, uh, get your Bibles open to Romans chapter number three. Romans chapter number three. This is where we're going to be focusing most, or uh, well, pretty much all of our time this morning. As we uh, enjoy uh, one of the most precious times uh, in the life of a church and the life of the believer, the Lord's Supper to me is is our favorite, uh, my favorite service we do. Uh, of course, you know we have Easter, uh, we have you know our, our our candlelight service, and that's one of, I love that one too. But I, I particularly enjoy the Lord's Supper because it's one of the only two ordinances that we are commanded as a church to perform baptism in the Lord's Supper. We're not commanded to perform uh, Easter uh, cantatas or Easter sunrise services. I know a lot of churches last last week had sunrise services and uh, I just I, I used our church uh, back home used to do them and uh, man I hated those things. Uh, you know getting up so and look they, the food was great but man I was exhausted by the end of the day and uh, but people you know we're not commanded to do a, a candlelight service. We're not commanded to do a sunrise service. We're commanded to Baptize believers and observe the Lord's Supper, and what we do here is we 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 take the entire service to dedicate to the Lord's Supper, and there's a couple of reasons for that. And one of the reasons is the the first Lord's Supper took place in the upper room with Jesus and the apostles. We we looked at it this past couple of weeks, where Jesus he gets his apostles together in the upper room. They they think they're going to observe the Passover, which is a a totally different thing. And we've gone through the Seder meal uh, in our Lord's Supper services before, how it was an hours-long meal with you know everybody had four glasses of wine and they had the, the, the egg, the hard-boiled egg and the bitter herbs and the, the, the root and the lamb shank and all these things that represented uh, certain aspects of the Passover event that God used to free Israel from Egypt. And so Jesus tells his apostles, go get a room for Passover. And so they go... They prepare the room. They've got all the stuff. They, they think this is what it's going to be. But when they get there, Jesus does something completely different. He washes their feet, which is totally unheard of. And then he institutes what we know as the Lord's Supper. The bread and the wine to represent his broken body and his shed blood. And one of the things you need to understand is this first Lord's Supper was a long event. It was an hours-long time that Jesus spent with his apostles teaching them and being, fellowshipping with them. And just, it was an intimate, passionate time. And so I believe many of the Lord's Supper services they did after Jesus' de- resurrection and after his ascension, they, they did the same thing. It was just an hours-long thing. And now I know a lot of churches, sometimes they'll, they'll tack the Lord's Supper onto the end of the service. I remember our church we used to go to, uh, they did it every fourth Sunday morning and fifth Sunday night. Uh, And just kind of, you know, after the the message was done after the songs were sung, it's like, okay, now we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And just kind of tacked on. And I never really liked that. Because to me, now that's not wrong. Because we're going to see, we do have some instruction about how to do the Lord's Supper. And that's not wrong if they do it that way. But to me, it kind of takes away the, the specialness of it. And the focus of it. And really how important it really truly is. So Zim was saying, as we're going to see at the end of the service, Paul gives some pretty severe warnings about observing the Lord's Supper unworthily. And again, we've talked about that. That's not in an unworthy manner, because none of us are worthy anyway. But it's kind of in a flippant, you know, kind of laxidaical, not getting right with God, not confessing sin and getting relationships right, and just kind of saying, oh, well, I'll just take it in. Paul says some of you are sick and some of you are dead because you're not taking it serious. And so that's why I announce it way ahead of time. I want you to have a week or two to get right with Jesus before we take the Lord's Supper. I need a week or two so I can get right with Jesus before we observe the Lord's Supper. So that's why we take the entire service to do it. And uh, Paul records this event in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter number 11. Again, I'm going to read that, but you can stay in, in, uh, in Romans because we're going to be back there in just a second. 1 uh, Corinthians chapter number 11, verses 23 through 26. He says, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he gave, had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he also took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of of me, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, there's a lot of beautiful truth in that passage, but there's not a lot of instruction for how to do the Lord's Supper. He just says, as often as you do it. As often as you observe the Lord's Supper, as often as you enjoy this Liz, meal, you are doing it to remember and to focus and to thank and praise God for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're doing here this morning uh, as we observe the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper, it's, it's to help us focus on the suffering of Jesus as he died for us. Now, of course, Paul says there, and Jesus says in the Lord's Supper, he goes, this bread represents my broken body, the body that is broken for you. And of course, if you've Read the crucifixion, and if you've really focused on it, you can tell that Jesus' body was truly destroyed for us. You know, Isaiah says he didn't even look like a man, he was so. Uh, beaten and severely dis- and severely uh, whipped, and so just the flesh was hanging off of him, the Bible tells us that no, no bones in his body were broken, but as they put him on the cross, his, his joints came dislocated, and so he was just on the cross after the scourging, after the beating, after the crown of thorns, after being hung on the cross, he didn 't look like a man. he looked like a, a piece of meat just hanging there, his body broken for us but then he talks about the blood he says the the juice the wine or the juice it represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ and that's what I want to really focus on this morning the blood of Jesus the blood of Jesus is central to our faith it's central it's foundational to our relationship with God. You know, our, our faith talks about, sings about the blood so much that a lot of people say we, we have a very bloody religion. And we do sing about the blood a lot. We do talk about the blood a lot. And if you're not used to church, if you're not used to that kind of teaching and that, that truth, it can be a little off-putting. But the Bible The Bible talks about the blood of Jesus a lot. You know, in the Bible, in 1 John, the Bible tells us that we are cleansed through the blood of Jesus. Acts chapter 20 says that the church, the church of God, was purchased through the blood of Jesus. 1 Corinthians says that we have peace with God through the blood of Jesus. Of Jesus. Hebrews 19 reminds us that everyone, everything is cleansed through blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. The Bible says, we are purified through His blood, we are made holy through His blood. we are freed from sin through his blood and you know so his blood is central to the teaching of the Bible, but it's also a pretty central theme in a lot of our, the songs that we sing. You know, this is our, our hymn book, and I know a lot of you are like, "We haven't seen that in two years." Why, COVID? If you have a question about why something's happened in the last couple of years, the answer is always COVID. All right. So we took them away. They're back there, uh, but anyway, you know. I, and I went through the song book this week, and I looked at some of the the songs in our song book that are about the blood of Jesus. I want to. I'm not going to sing them because I don't want to do that to you. Uh, but what about Song Four Sixty Five, Baptized in Water? Anybody know that song, Baptized in Water? Trudy's going to come play it. She's like, No, I'm not. Baptized in water, sealed in the sealed by the Spirit, cleansed by the blood. You ever really thought about that? You know that, that phrase we see in the Bible. We say, You know, you are cleaned by the blood. You ever tried to clean something up with blood? You need bleach to clean up blood, but here's blood cleaning us. We are cleansed by the blood. What about Psalm 339? By his grace. You all know that one? By his grace I am redeemed. By his blood I am made clean. We'll get to some, some more familiar ones you probably understand. You probably like these. Uh, oh, the blood of Jesus. Anybody know that one? Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus, oh, the blood of Jesus, oh, the blood of Jesus, it washes white as snow. And y'all say y'all love the old hymns. Y'all don't know none of these. All right, what about 334? The blood will never lose its power. Anybody know that one? The blood that Jesus shed for me, it soothes my doubt and cleanses my fears. Y'all don't know that one either. All right, well, how about 335? The cross of Jesus, cross of sorrow. Cross of Jesus, cross of sorrow, where the blood of Christ was shed. Perfect man on thee did suffer. Perfect God on thee has bled. All right, I know you all know this one. 336, there is a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood. You all know that one? All right, we finally got one you all know. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. We sung this one already, 337, nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Or how about 331, his cleansing blood. I know a fount where sins are washed away. I know a place where night is turned to day. Burdens are lifted, blind eyes made to see the wonderful working, uh, the wonderful working power in the blood of Calvary. Three thirty-three, or oh, oh, we already did it to the blood. Um, okay, three thirty. Are you washed in the blood? Have you been to Jesus for His cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And then number three thirty-nine is the one I want to focus on. It's one of my favorite. There's power in the blood. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Would you, or evil, or victory, win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There's power, power, wonder-working power. Oh, there's power in the blood. Now, look, we, we, we know, apparently, some of those songs. as many as I thought we would know. But I'm going to be honest with you. As I was looking through the songbook and I was looking at these songs, I was like, I never heard this one. And so April's like, are you going to sing it? I'm like, well, the good thing about not knowing a song and no one knowing a song is I can make up the tune. So it don't matter if the tune's right. I can put it to Gilligan's Island and it's fine. But we are, as believers, we are familiar with the teaching of the power of the blood of Jesus. We know the scriptures about it, we know the songs about it, we talk about the blood of Jesus, we sing about the blood of Jesus, but I'm afraid that too many believers don't really understand the power of the blood of Jesus. And here's the problem with that. When you don't really fully understand the power of the blood of Jesus, it leaves you vulnerable to staying captive to the lies of the enemy. There's a lot of lies that the enemy tells to try to distract you or weaken your relationship and your walk with God. One of the lies that Satan tells us, that if you don't understand the power of the blood, you'll fall prey to, is you are suffering in your life because of sins you committed against God. Your sin is causing you to suffer judgment and punishment from God. And look, we've all been there. We think that the pain we suffer is a direct result of God being angry with us and punishing us for our sins. And look, that is a terrible, fearful way to live. That's a a terrible way to live. You know, people, they struggle in their marriage because... ...before they think, well, our marriage is struggling, our marriage is on the rocks... ...because before we got married, we, we, we slept together and we violated the word of God... ...and so now, because we did that then, God is punishing us now. You know, I heard a, a man's testimony uh, this week... Uh, ...that he, 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 uh, he suffered the loss of his, eyes, of his eyesight in one eye. And he was saying he believed that God took his eyeball... ...because he used his eye to look at pornography... I used my eyes to sin against God, so God took my eyes. That's not how God works. That's not what. That's, that's a terrible way to live. He felt like God was punishing him but, or judging him because of some sin he had committed in the past. Now look, that is a lie of the devil. And when you understand the power of the blood, it sets you free from those lies. Another lie that we tend to believe is that the worst thing you have ever done is who you are. The worst thing you've ever done, that's how God sees you. So, let's just say the worst thing you've ever done is, is you told a lie. I know some of you, that's not the worst. But let's say the worst thing you've ever done is told a lie. Well, now God sees you, no matter what you do, no what you do in life, God sees you as a liar. You committed adultery on your wife when now God all sees you as an, an adulterer. Our worst day is what God views us as. And that's not true. That's a lie of the enemy. You know, you have an anger problem. So God just sees you as an angry person. You label yourself by your past sin. But here's the thing. The blood of Jesus removes those labels from us. The blood of Jesus makes us new. And when we don't truly understand the power of the blood, it limits our relationship with God and it hinders our worship of God. Matthew Henry said this, he goes, Nothing more destroys the faith of the gospel than by any means to weaken the direct power of the blood of Jesus. We see this power in Romans Chapter number three. And of course, the book of Romans was written by the apostle Paul to the believers at Rome. Uh, of course, these believers were were Jewish and Gentile believers who had been saved in the Roman, the city of Rome, and so they're struggling in their walk with God. And so Paul is trying to teach them what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live a life honoring God, and really showing the gifts. Of Christianity. And in chapter three, he breaks down what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So this is in chapter three, verse number twenty-three. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins. That are passed through the forbearance of God. So there's a lot of complex words and terms in that passage that uh, we're going to understand, that we're going to look at, we're going to dive deeper into, and that's what this is here. So we're going to look at these three terms this morning propitiation, redemption, and justification. What do they really mean? Now, we probably have a good idea about what redemption and justification has. But how many of y'all in the last year have used the word propitiation in a conversation with someone? Oh, you have not. <laughs> so, so we have these, these three words that many of us, uh, unless we're weirdos like, like Ian, who likes to look at the etymology of stuff, uh, and me, we don't really understand what these words or what these terms really truly mean and understanding these terms are vital to understanding the power of the blood of Jesus and it shows us a gift that God gives us through his blood but before we get to that I want to focus on verse 3 on uh, chapter 3 verse 23 this is one we've all know we've all quote you can probably quote it by yourself for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God here's I want to focus on that You are never going to truly appreciate the beauty of the power of the blood, the beauty of the good news, unless you understand the severity of the bad news. You're never going to truly understand how beautiful and powerful the blood of Jesus is until you understand what it really did for you and what it saved you from. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone here is a sinner. If you didn't think you were, I'm sorry I just bursted your bubble and offended you. Every one of us, for all, have sinned. But it goes further than that. And fallen short of the glory of God. See, all of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we were born, no matter how we were raised, no matter how faithful we are to church, no matter how much we give to church, all of us have fallen short of meeting God's perfect standard of holiness. See, now the world likes to focus on our differences. Different races, different religions, different genders, different uh, political leanings and political ideologies, different sports teams. But here's the thing. Every person in the world has this in common. No matter what you have different with your neighbor, you have in common, you're both sinners and you both fall short of God's glory. And you both, because of that sin, deserve to spend eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. See, we've all violated God's holiness. That's a problem. Because we've sinned against a holy God, you know. John, he, uh, the Apostle John, warns of us the consequences of violating the holiness of God. In John three thirty six, he says, "He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him." As sinners, the wrath of God is something we are going to have to face something we're going to have to deal with. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin, the consequences of sin is eternal separation from God because of our sin. See, there is a a wrath, there is a righteous retribution that God puts on every single one of us because of our sin against Him. John Piper says this, he goes, "...the greatest peril facing every person in every ethnic group, in every place on earth, and at every time in history, is the righteous wrath of God against guilty sinners leading to eternal suffering unless God himself rescues us from his own judgment. Every person who has ever and will ever live and is alive today will stand before God one day. Bible says, it's appointed on the man once to die and then the judgment. And if that person, if we are not covered by the blood of Jesus, then we will experience the wrath of God for our sin. Piper continues, he says, poverty, hunger, disease, war, crime, climate change, addictions, homelessness... Ignorance, sex trafficking, these bring great global suffering. And they pale in comparison to the peril of being under the wrath of God. They are all tragic, but they are all temporary. They may last a lifetime, but the wrath of God lasts forever. So that's the bad news. That's the bad news that every single person that's ever lived has to deal with. But the verses that we just read in Romans chapter 3, they give us the good news about what the blood of Jesus does for us. So let's look at verse 35. We're going to look at these words. Uh, Romans 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 25. says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now that's a, a big word that most of us don't use anymore. Now, according to the Cambridge English Dictionary, propitiation is defined as an act of pleasing or making calm a God or person who is annoyed with you. How many of y'all think God's annoyed with you? It goes a little deeper than that. So it's not that, you know, God's annoyed. You know, to me, it's just like, you know, when, when I'm annoyed with my kids... And they do something to calm me down. That's propitiation, according to Cambridge. That's not what we're seeing here. Uh, the Greek word here—it's only used. It's, tra- it's used two other times in Scripture. One time it's translated again as propitiation, but another time it's translated as mercy seat. So here's what propitiation really means. Because a lot of times, you know, and I've tried to explain it. It's like paying a ransom. You know, there's a ransom due on you, and somebody in Jesus paid the ransom for you, but it goes even deeper than that. What the word propitiation in the Greek, because it, it has a Hebrew counterpart, what it talks about is it's really bringing us back to remember the mercy seat of God during the Day of Atonement. And you would understand, you know, we've talked about the Day of Atonement in the past, where the Day of Atonement. Everyone would come to the, the tabernacle or the temple and they would bring a spotless lamb. They they had to choose a spotless lamb. Uh, couldn't be deformed or couldn't be sick and couldn't be old and about to die. They had to choose a, a as perfect of a lamb as they could. And they would take this lamb to the high priest, and the high priest would put this lamb on the altar, and he would the family, the father would place his hand on the lamb's head. Symbolically transferring his sin to that lamb, then that lamb would have his throat slit and the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat and it would atone for the sins of that family for a year. It would cover them up for a year. And so the blood of the sacrifice, the life of this sacrifice, it paid the debt of the sin, uh, the sin debt for the people for a year. The blood of Jesus is more powerful than the blood of lambs. He's not the Lamb of God that covers your sin. Because again, in the Old Testament, the Lamb, His blood didn't take away your sin, it just covered it. But John said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Not the sin of your family. Doesn't cover it for a bit. It takes away. ...away the sin of the world. His blood pays our debt... ...for all of eternity. Here's how uh, one theologian defines... ...or John Piper, he defines... Connor, next slide... ...he defines propitiation. It refers to the removal of God's wrath... ...by providing a substitute. The substitute is provided by God himself. The substitute, Jesus Christ... ...does not just cancel the wrath... He absorbs it and diverts it from us to himself. God's wrath is just and it was spent, not withdrawn. So on the cross, Jesus, God didn't stop pouring it. You know, God didn't see Jesus and say, well, he's my son, I'm not going to pour it. No, God poured out his wrath for sin on Jesus... On the cross. And so Jesus, he, on the cross, he literally became sin for us. And when God looked at him, he didn't see his son that he'd spent eternity past and eternity future with. He didn't see his beloved son whom he's well pleased. He saw my sin and your sin. And he poured his wrath out on Jesus. So what does propitiation do for us? It absorbs the wrath of God. This is a sponge if you can't tell. I had to go to six stores to find one, a big enough one for you all to see. And it's a car sponge, so the blood of Jesus is like a microfiber sponge for your car. It absorbs the wrath of God. See, it's not that the wrath of God is, is waiting to be done somewhere else. Jesus, he took all of God's wrath. You know what that means? Since he absorbed all of God's wrath for you, God has none for you. God doesn't have any wrath left to pour out on you because Jesus absorbed all of it. He completely absorbed God's wrath towards us. That means that God has no wrath left for us so that we stand before him, we have the blood of Jesus on our account, and it's not like he's going to go, okay, well, you did get saved, but you also messed up later, so there's a little bit of punishment you're going to have to... No, no, no. All the wrath was poured out on Jesus, and Jesus absorbed every ounce of God's wrath for us, that means that whatever you're suffering, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're struggling with, it's not because of sin. God's not punishing you because of sin, because He already gave all the punishment to Jesus. He already poured out His wrath on Jesus. So if you're being punished for sin, that means that the punishment that Jesus endured on the cross for you was insufficient. It wasn't good enough. So God has to punish you more because of your sin. Now, Jesus, as he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. I have absorbed the wrath of God for the sin of the world. And that is good ...news for us. That means, since Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God for my sin... ...I don't have to fear the punishment of God. I don't have to worry about being punished for my sin... ...because Jesus was already fully punished for my sin. Now, side note here... ...just because there is no punishment from God for your sin... Doesn't mean there's not consequences because of your sin. There's no vertical wrath, but there's horizontal consequences. You know, you, you go out here and drive down 81, I would say so going 80, but everybody goes 80, going on 120 and get pulled over and get a ticket. It's not God punishing you, it's the result of your actions. It's consequences because of your sin. So, you know, we saw, how many of y'all, I, I know we've all seen it, the Oscars, how many of y'all saw Will Smith smack Chris Rock? We all saw it. If Chris Rock would have hauled off and smacked him back, that would have been punishment for his sin. So, Chris Rock obviously is not God. He's not God anyway. I'm not saying he is, but the, the academy disciplined Will Smith. Now, you may not have think it was big enough, and I'd agree with you, but for Ten years, he cannot go to the Academy Awards. He can still get nominated. He can still win awards. He just can't go to the show, which, you know, to me sounds like a win because you don't got to sit through that four hours of, you know, this is the best lighting award. Who cares about that? So, you know, it, may, it was insufficient, but that punishment is the consequences for your sin. If your finances right now are in a mess... Because for years, you mishandled them. You got too much credit. You spent more than you made. You got some payday loans or whatever. But you, you just, you did what you wanted to do. And you used your money how you wanted to. And now your finances are a wreck. That's not punishment from God. That's consequences for your actions. You know, no angry wrath is coming to you from God. But there are horizontal consequences. Also, though there's no punishment from God, there is discipline from God. The Bible says God disciplines those he loves. See, what's the difference? Punishment is meant to hurt. It's meant to to do damage, to, to give you a consequence, to repay you for what you've done. That's what prison is. Prison is a punishment. It is retribution for what you have done. Whatever it is. You murdered someone. Whatever it is. Prison is, this is the punishment you have to suffer because of what you've done. Discipline is meant to correct. It's meant to say, hey, what you did was wrong and here's why. And so let's, let's try to change that behavior. So yes, you will never suffer punishment or wrath from God. But you will suffer discipline from God. So what is? Propitiation means, it means that God has absorbed the wrath of God on the cross, that the blood of Jesus completely absorbed the wrath of God, but it also means we can live in less fear of God. We can live in peace with God. It It means I don't have to fear God smiting me because I messed up, because Jesus' blood absorbed God's wrath. Let's look at that second word. Look at verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. So redemption, that's a word we know. word most of us, you know, we've heard a lot of times in church. Redemption means that we are released from a penalty of... We are, we are released from penalty of having to pay back a debt owed to God. It means that we had a sin debt... ...placed on us. The payment for that debt... ...was eternity in hell... ...separated from God. God said, you can live a perfect... ...sinless life... ...or you can spend eternity in hell... ...and that will pay for your sin debt. The blood of Jesus means we are redeemed... ...which means that sin debt we had... ...doesn't have to be paid back. It's already been paid... ...on our behalf. We are forgiven through the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 1.7 says, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Here's, here's what it means. There's a lot of controversy now over, over student loan debt. You know, if you are like me, and you helped put your wife through medical school, medical training school, and she got a student debt, and you paid that loan back every single penny, when you hear politicians now saying, we're going to forgive the debt of all the people who are in college... I'm like, well, I, can I get a refund? That's fine. You, you give, Forgive their debt, but I want my money back too. Especially since April doesn't use her degree. So I'm like, can I get a refund on this thing? I kept the receipts. So there's a lot of controversy about the student loan debt and whether it should be given or not. But here's the thing. If you had, say, $100,000 in student debt, which today is really pretty easy to get, so you've got $100,000 in student debt, and somebody comes up to you and says, we are going to forgive your debt. It's completely forgiven. You don't have to pay it back. Are you making your payment next month? All right, let's talk about it. How many of y'all still, you all still have a mortgage? All right, you got a mortgage, you got rent, whatever. If Penny Mac called me up, because they have my mortgage, and they said, Mr. Menix, we're going to forgive your mortgage debt. We're going to send you the deed to your house. Your debt is forgiven. I'm not making that $858 payment next month because it's forgiven. I don't got to pay it. I'm free from the burden of having to pay that debt. Some of us, even though we have been redeemed, we have been freed from the burden of paying our sin debt. We still live our lives trying to pay God back trying to pay God for a debt that's already been taken care of. Even though we're forgiven of our sins. First Peter says, "For you know that you were not redeemed from your vain way of life inherited from your fathers, which perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood ...of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. See, the word redemption here, it points back to the exodus from Egypt... ...where God sent Moses to redeem Israel out of slavery... ...and they left Egypt... ...free of the bondage of slavery... ...free from the burden of slavery... ...and they went into the promised land. Now, the morning they woke up... ...after they crossed the Red Sea... ...and they were free from slavery... ...they didn't go to Moses and say... ...well, should we go back to Egypt and keep working for those guys? No, because they were free from it. They were freed... ...from the bondage of slavery. The blood of Jesus... ...sets us free from slavery... ...to sin. Our debt... Is canceled and we never have to pay it back. So the blood of Jesus is like a key that frees us from the shackles of sin. And once those shackles of sin are released, once we are freed from them, we never have to go back to them. That debt is paid. We never have to go back and continue to pay it. We are set free from the sin that changes. We are set free from anger and jealousy and addiction and lust. Redemption is the key that frees us from the shackles of sin. And we never have to go back and be a slave to it ever again. Redemption through the blood of Jesus means that we have less bondage to sin. You are free from the penalty of sin. You are freed from the power of sin. And one day we'll be freed from the presence of sin. But here's the third word I want to look at. We've looked at propitiation. We've looked at redemption. Third word I want to look at, justification. Connor, justification. Look at verse 24 again. Being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. A lot of people have said, I've heard people say, justification means just as if I'd never sinned. It's close, but it goes deeper than that. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 says, How much more then, being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from wrath through him? It isn't that we appear as if we have never sinned. What justification really means is our account is completely erased. It's not like, well, I look as if I've never sinned. No. God looks at you and says, you've never sinned. Your account has been cleared of any wrongdoing. We are not sinners saved by grace. We are righteous and holy before God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5 says God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's the thing, and we say it all the time, and I, don't, I know we don't really mean it, but people say, you know, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus did not die for your sins. Jesus died as a sinner for you. He didn't die to take the place. You know, he didn't say, well, I'm going I'm to die in their place. No, he became a sinner He allowed my sin to be put on his account and my account to be made clear so that when God looked at him on the cross and he poured out his wrath on Jesus, he saw a vile sinner that he was pouring his wrath out on and so that when I accept his death, burial and resurrection, as payment for my sin, when I am cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ, God doesn't see me as a sinner who had somebody pay his debt. God sees me as righteous and as holy as his son Jesus Christ. He became sin so I could become righteous. I'm not seen as righteous. I am made righteous before God. As righteous as Jesus. As holy and as pure as Jesus. He became a sinner. That's why Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for that time... As he was dying for my sins, as he became a sinner for me, God turned his back on his son so that I could have fellowship with God the Father. Their fellowship was broken at that moment because Jesus had become my my sin. Martin Martin Lloyd Jones says this. He says, not only our justification means not only that our sins are forgiven and that we have been declared to be righteous by God himself... Not merely that we were righteous at the moment when we believed, but permanently righteous. For justification means this also, that we are given by God the positive righteousness of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, for us to be able to have a relationship with God, we need two things we need to be forgiven of our sins, have our debt forgiven of our sins, that's redemption. But we also need to be declared righteous so we can have fellowship with the Holy God. That's what justification is. So what does justification do for us? Justification is like a judge's gavel. Where God looks at us and he sees the blood of Jesus and he says, innocent. Not not guilty. There's a difference in not guilty and innocent. Not guilty means the prosecution didn't have enough evidence to put you in prison. Innocent means you didn't do nothing wrong. So God doesn't look at me and say, well, you know what, not guilty. You know, you're, you're pretty bad, but you got the blood, so not guilty. No, you look at me and goes, you're innocent. You are as righteous and as holy as Jesus Christ. You are declared that by the judge of the universe because the power of the blood of Jesus has made me righteous. See, we are declared righteous forever. And that can never be taken away. You know, there's a, a theory in, in the law called double jeopardy. Uh, and it's not the game show thing. And it's not the movie. Uh, but it's the double jeopardy where if you are tried for a crime and you are found not guilty, you can never be tried for that again, even if you admit to it. So if I if I murder April, because I'm statistically the one most likely to kill her, uh, because, you know, that's husbands and wives usually kill each other. So I kill April, and I'm put on trial, and I'm found not guilty. I can walk out of the courthouse and say, huh, I did it. And they can't try me for it again, because I've been declared not guilty. So when God looks at me and says, you're innocent, that means I will never have to stand before God for my sin again, because I've been declared innocent. That righteousness will never be taken away. Once the judge slams the gavel, we can never be brought to court again for the same charges. You know, justification is God slamming his gavel down and saying, You're righteous, and there's nothing that can take that away because of the blood of Jesus. Because we are justified. We don't have to strive to be seen as righteous before God. We can rest in the righteousness of the blood of Jesus that was given to us through his death, burial, and resurrection. We can rest in fellowship with God. That means we can we can get off the roller coaster of God's love, where we think, Man, I, I read my Bible today, I prayed today, I went to church today, so God loves me today. But then you wake up tomorrow and think, man, I didn't feel like it, I didn't read my Bible, I didn't pray, I didn't do what I should have done, I, I got mad in traffic and cussed somebody. I snapped at my kids. I messed up so God doesn't love me. Justification means God always loves you. Through his blood, we are declared righteous so God doesn't see your sin. He sees you as a precious, holy child of God. You are as loved today by God as you will ever be. And there's nothing that can happen to take that love away from you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. That is the power of the blood. And that is great news because there's something, but there's something that we have to do by it, do about it. Look again at verse number 23. It says, for we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sin that are passed through the forbearance of God. This power, the power of the blood, is freely given to everyone. But we have to freely accept it. We have to accept The fact that Jesus died in our place. We have to accept the fact that Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us. Faith through his blood that the wrath has been absorbed. Faith that his blood has set us free from the power of sin. And faith that we are made righteous in God through the blood of Jesus. If you've ever done that this morning, today's the day to do it. Today's the day to put your faith in the shed blood of Jesus and the death, and burial, and resurrection of Christ as total and complete payment for your sin. But there's some more instruction Paul gives us that I want to look at before we observe the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11, starting verse 27, it says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, "...shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but let a man examine himself. So let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily... ...eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body." So what does that mean? You eat and you drink unworthily... ...when you don't truly focus on and understand the power of the blood. When you know, yeah, the blood of Jesus has cleansed me of my sin... And so now I can live my life how I want to. No, 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 no. The blood of Jesus cleanses you of all your sin, past sin, present sin, future sin. But it also compels you to live holy before God. So what Paul is warning us here is before we observe the Lord's Supper, we need to examine ourselves. Take some time and, and pray to God. Say, God, is there is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Any sin I've refused to get right. Any relationship I need to, to reconcile. And maybe Look, maybe God lays a relationship on your heart. And you can't reconcile it right now. But you, better, you can say, God, God, as soon as I have the first opportunity I have, I'm going to reconcile that relationship. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to do what I have to do to get back into fellowship with God. So we're going to take a few moments. We're going to have Trudy come forward. And she's going to, going to pray. Uh, she's going to play. And I just want to take time to focus on the power of God. Take some time to remember and thank God what He has done. And if there's any unconfessed in your heart, get it right this morning. Before we take, because Paul says some of you are sick and some of you are dying because you're not taking the Lord's Supper as seriously as you should. So, Miss Trudy's going to play. The little Holy Spirit let on something on your heart. Just take some time and reflect on what He's done in your life and pray and pray confess and repent and do what needs to be done. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.